if you're talking about someone losing a job or somebody maybe going to jail because of this outcome, you need to sort of think about what is a failure mode need in that situation. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's qlik.de slash data stories. Welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. Hey, Moritz. Hi, Enrico. How's it going? Good. I had a long week. Long I'm week. Ready for the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Same for me. Same for me. Busy time right now. Busy as usual. Yeah. I saw you started blogging again. What's yeah. up with that? Yeah. I don't know. That's great. I felt like that every two years I can I can still write a blog post. Yeah. So now we have to wait for another couple of years. You have one in you every two years. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. these better be good. This one was good. It's about teaching methods. I, I really enjoyed it. So you should check it out. <laughs> Happy to yeah. hear that. Just yeah, advertising yeah, yeah. your stuff here. Blogging, it's so retro. I, I like that somebody still does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the age of Snapchat, Snapchats and so on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we have another great episode today. Uh, we want to talk about a recurring topic, which is um, about how do machines make decisions uh, that have an impact on, on us and uh, society in general. And to talk about this, we are going to focus on specific kind of work coming from ProPublica, and more specifically about the work published in an uh, article titled Machine bias. And uh, to talk about that, we have one of the others, and his name is Jeff Larson, and he's a person from ProPublica. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, Jeff Larson. I'm the data editor of ProPublica, um, which means I'm on the nerdy side of journalists. I do uh, statistical analysis and looking at data to find stories. And yeah, we worked on this story for about a year. So it's good that it's finally out. So can you um, briefly describe what the project is about? Sure. So ever since for even the 1890s, people have been trying to sort of predict who is likely to commit another crime via statistical methods. This idea really gained popularity in the 60s and 70s, but its use wasn't necessarily widespread. Given in the last decade or so, maybe two decades, uh, with the advent of computers um, and the ability to analyze large amounts of data, uh, we have now these things called risk assessments. And what they are is in criminal justice agencies, when you're arrested, they ask you a bunch of questions and they look at your criminal history and they try and predict how likely it is you are to reoffend. For a long time, we use these things 
post conviction. So after for pre, for release, post conviction release. So after you've done your time, what sort of how likely do we think you're going to come back? Do you need drug treatment? Do you need psychological help? That sort of thing. What sort of services do you need post conviction? What's troubling about them in recent years is they've started using it both pre-sentencing to figure out what your particular sentence should be. And also before, you know, even before you uh, pre-trial conviction. So the sequence of events is someone gets arrested, they spend their night in jail and the, in the morning, they're asked a bunch of, asked a bunch of questions. Then they go to a hearing and that hearing is whether or not you can go home or not in the particular case we looked at, or we're going to keep you in jail for the next three months. Mm-hmm. Now, trying to predict that, trying to predict something like how likely you are to reoffend is problematic because there are a number of reasons people commit crime, not all of which is very clean cut, right? It's not, a crime is somewhat inherently random. And what we found in our article was there's this private company We have no idea how they calculate these scores. We know somewhat the model they used, um, just the shape of it, Mm -hmm. but we don't know the individual decisions that go through that 130 questions plus your criminal history to come up with the score. What we found is it was for people who did not go on to reoffend after two years, that African-Americans were twice as likely to be rated high risk versus white defendants. And so you ask yourself the question, well, is that just because maybe they have longer criminal histories? We then went and corrected for criminal history and the type of crime that the person committed to be booked and found in age and gender and found that even then, African-Americans were 45% more likely to get the higher score on this particular test. Even though if you look um, sort of paradoxically, if you look at it in terms of actual predictive ability, it's sort of equally predictive or very close mm-hmm. predict-wise among African-Americans and white defendants. So the error in absolute terms is the same, but the direction is different, right? Yeah, the direction is different. The way it gets to it is for white defendants, it underpredicts their likelihood of recidivism. And it overpredicts the likelihood of recidivism for African Americans. And we tested this two ways: one with Cox regression model, and one in another way with uh, just a straight logistic regression. So to make it even clearer, this means that there are uh, black people that are um, convicted, and they wouldn't um, commit a, gr- a crime again, right? That's one side of it. And you also have the opposite. The other kind of error is that it's more likely to have white people who are actually not convicted and end up making crimes within two years, right? Yeah, well, they're convicted. I mean, you know, pretty much everybody who goes to the criminal justice system are convicted. Mm -hmm. But this algorithm said that white people were less risky than black defendants, for example. And that's a problem in a criminal justice context because the sole... Uh, sort of social vehicle we have that is highly designed to protect against false positives is the criminal justice system, right? We have baked into our laws 
that you're innocent until proven guilty, not the other way around. Yeah. Right, right. And so false positives matter a lot in criminal <laughs> justice. Yeah, yeah, Even yeah. though, of course, you have the problem of public opinion, right? You don't want to have... <laughs> right? Justice releasing people out there who are actually very dangerous. So it's, but yeah, uh, <laughs> you also have that, you have, you have right? that problem too, right? Like, yeah. So, so politicians <laughs> or criminal justice, is, you know, they also don't want to, there's a social cost to saying someone's less risky who turns out to yeah. be very risky. Yeah. For example. yeah. But I have to say, it's crazy that such a strong and such an explicit bias is in such a mechanism. It's like one can only... I don't know. I, I found your article super shocking. Like I wouldn't have expected, you know, such a blatant um, bias and such a like decision method. Do we know anything where this bias comes in? Like you said, you don't really know how the questionnaire was designed. You don't really know what the the statistics or the maths behind, like how to get from the answers to the score is. But do you have an idea of how, where? Where is that bias located, or is it distributed through the whole system? Or what, what, what's your? How much do we know there? There's a number of theories. There's uh, I can tell you sort of how it works. I mean, at it at its core, these risk algorithms are going to be some sort of classifier. In this case, I think, but I'm not entirely sure. I've just sort of inferred by reading the company's papers that they're using some sort of logistic model with a number of weights. So essentially what they do is they give you the questionnaire and they bucket the, that questionnaire into particular topics. Yeah. So violent thinking, criminal thinking, um, and then they add in weights for how old you are, which sort of makes sense. Like if you're 50 years old and you're coming in, this is probably your last crime. Like you might want to uh, <laughs> sort of hang up your hat, your crime hat. Yeah. And then also uh, gender, criminal history, and what crime you committed. So when we were able to sort of suss that out and infer that that's how it worked, we tried to correct for everything that we knew about. Obviously, when, well, not obviously, when we asked the, you know, criminal justice agency in Broward County for the scores, they just gave us the raw scores. They didn't have access to the weights of the questionnaire, right? Yeah. It just goes into a computer software, the software spits out the answer, but we could get the individual scores and we could get their criminal justice Uh, you know, criminal histories, but we didn't know how those scores were actually calculated within the machine because the, it's proprietary software, right. right? So we don't know the actual weights. And we went back and forth with them and they finally answered a little bit of the questions, but they didn't give us the actual underlying. But, but there's a private company that runs yeah. this for the government and does not disclose how the actual decision comes about right is, is right, that true exactly. i think that's yeah. crazy i think that's crazy uh, given how how grave these the consequences can be you know isn't there something like you know that in legal like processes everything like you have to have this like due diligence and this you know chain of custody and you know all these things that make sure that nothing bad happens yeah there's discovery um and when we when we talked to the prosecutors down there they were like we have no idea i mean the the, uh, the public defenders not the prosecutors when we talked to them down there they had in Broward county they had no idea what was going on right. right so which leads to a whole bunch of discovery issues in Broward county they're not using it at trial they're just using it for pre-trial release you know sort of to estimate how like uh, how much of a 
um, flight risk you are. So it's not necessarily evidence used against you. I'm not a lawyer or anything like that. I don't know if discovery actually applies, but people have looked at this idea of if you get pre-trial release, are you more likely to be found guilty? And the answer is yes, because you show up to court in, you know, the orange pajamas or whatever, right? You know, you come through the special door, the bailiff unlocks your hands. That has sort of a weight on juries as to whether or not you're guilty. If you come in in handcuffs versus if, if you come in through the front door, there already is a look that juries will give you in terms of what that is. So it has actual consequences for the trial. So Jeff, um, do you know how judges actually use the software? I mean, is they do they just blindly use this information? How much uh, uh, weight uh, do they give to this information? How, how does it happen in practice? We talked to a bunch of people and the answers are sort of all over the board on that. We have one example in Wisconsin, a guy who, you know, was going to be released and then the judge looked at his, or was going to get a lighter sentence. The judge looked at his risk score and said, you're very risky and increased his sentence. You know, in Broward County, when we talked to the judge down there, he says he takes it under consideration, but he couldn't actually tell us exactly how he uses it. It's it, there's, you know, it's up to the discretion of whoever's looking at it. I think, although the company that we looked at is does provide uh, sort of suggested sentencing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a judge and you're having sort of like you don't want to think about a lot of things, you can just look at that suggested sentence. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, and do you have any idea if actually judges without software are more accurate than judges with the software? Because that, that, that's, that's very relevant, right? I mean, right. You, you, you can, in principle, you can claim that even if it's not perfect, it might actually still be better than, than just all the biases that judges necessarily do have, right? Yeah, and I would agree with that just in principle, right? Um, however... You know, and I went in say I went into this project because I am a statistics guy. I thought that it would be very good in at, at segmenting these uh, populations or whatever recidivist versus not recidivist. However, uh, someone at 538, I think it was, or uh, either 538 or the Marshall Project looked into that question: Are there any studies about biases, particular judicial biases? And she couldn't find any at all. And the reason being, the reason, the reason why that is, is because we have essentially an undecidable criminal justice system. Everybody has their own set of rules. Everybody prosecutes differently than other folks. In some counties, you can't buy liquor, right? Or you can't even have liquor, right? So there's obviously going to be different laws there. So doing a sort of outside of the county level analysis of judges' behavior becomes very, very, very difficult. Also, the law is strangely convoluted. We have sentencing guidelines, but we don't necessarily have like a decision tree on how the law works. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost easier to sort of audit an algorithm, which is a point in its favor, right? Because you you have a clearly defined set of outcomes. Did this person come back or not? Yeah, it's very measurable what, what's going on there, right? It's like, yeah. yeah, did they commit another crime or not? It's like super, like made for machine learning, actually, if you think about it, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> However, uh, you know, but in if you're trying to audit judges' bias, it's like, did this guy get two more months worth of sentence unfairly? Like, what is your decision boundary there? It's very yeah. hard to yeah. do that particular study. Where is the bias there? In my in 
you know, just being a human, I do believe that probably judges can be more biased, especially in areas like the South. Yeah. But I don't have any facts to back that up, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I vaguely remembered that study that showed that judges are way, way harsher the, the closer they are uh, around lunchtime. And then also there was a study just this week about like if the college football team or the, in the past few weeks, if their college football team loses, people get longer <laughs> sentences. Oh my Jesus. God. It's yeah. terrible, right? I, I think it's, it's very important to keep things in perspective, right? Because sure. on the one hand, we are here clearly to criticize machines, but on the other hand, uh, there, there is a, there is also a positive side of trying to do that, right? So that, I think that's one of the most interesting challenges we are having today that, um, we have to be very careful and, uh, there are, potentially a lot of gains, but we have to do it right. And that's that's such a big challenge. One of the things we found in our reporting is that a lot of people buy this software and then don't ever validate it against their the yeah. population, right. right? So obviously you're going to buy a software that either the way it works is they use a population from Cal from a bunch of states to train initial weights. And then you're supposed to, after two or so years, validate against your population and fit it back to make it more accurate. And a lot of places haven't done that validation. So that would be one step in making these things a little bit better at the very least. Mm -hmm. Like actually improves the model over time. I mean, that, that seems so obvious that you just check how well it performs and, and keep, keep adjusting. Right. Yeah. Right. And you, you've been communicating with the company that actually produces this software. Can you tell us about a little bit about how um, this went? I mean, we, we had talked to them for a year. I mean, we've been in content, constant contact with them. It was a very interesting conversation when we sent them uh, our results that I'm not really going to talk so much about. But afterwards, <laughs> they, they wrote like a 36-page paper saying, you know, it's equally predictive among the two races. So I don't see what the problem is. And yeah, sure. Yeah. Different wow. kind of mistakes, though. <laughs> yeah. But it's the direction of the mistakes that matters. And that's sort of our point, right? Yeah, you can have you can have a test that's equally calibrated, right? It's calibrated among the two races that predicts totally fine. So that's great for a criminal justice agency. But if you're a person who is rated high risk when you're trying to clean up your life, that has very serious impact on your life, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of, you know, uh, sentences and stuff. The other thing that I will say that we didn't make a lot of, we didn't actually write about in our story, but we found in our longer technical article was that there is a very serious gender difference among Uh, uh, among the genders in that a high-risk woman has the exact same risk as a medium-risk man. So it means something totally different for women. The weird part is the company sells an add-on to correct that problem, but <laughs> Broward County didn't buy it. So, wow. Wow. so like, it's just kind of, that's you know, insane. and that's a serious problem in criminology that you almost have to have two separate models that you run for women and men. Right. Uh, and maybe that's a solution here for between races, but that also gets a little weird or, or kind of ooky. I don't know. Because they used to do that in the 60s and 70s, and then they stopped for obvious reasons. But, uh, you know, it's just strange. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's tricky. I mean, how I, I, you've thought about this now a lot, like like what the problem is. How would you see, like, how could one approach or get the best out of these algorithms, but avoid these mistakes of, yeah, putting people like essentially building prejudice into into predictive algorithms? I mean, there, there's a fine line between like a heuristic. Right. And the prejudice in the sense that some some things like income or education might might be good indicators of, you know, like criminal activity or so in the future. But if you rely too much on these like very simple indicators, then, yeah, then you run into this problem of, of prejudice. Right. They, actually, some of the questions do cover that. Right. Some of the questions are really kind of strange. Like if you're poor, do you believe it's it's okay to steal? Like we got the actual questionnaires yeah. um, in there on our website. You know, how many people do you know who have been arrested? Obviously, the answer to that is going to be in uh, different in like rural Connecticut versus downtown, versus, you know, um, the African-American neighborhoods right, in, yeah. in Broward County, Fort yeah. Lauderdale, because we do have, because there is sort of historic over-policing, especially in the South of African-American neighborhoods. But the answer to the question is, yes, you have to be very, very careful in what you choose. Um, if you're choosing income, well, there's a correlated Uh, socioeconomic status is also correlated, right? So you have to be very careful. I think in terms of what can make things better, we've already talked about a couple things, but the Wisconsin Supreme Court looked at the use of it in Wisconsin and, and essentially advocated for a warning label. If you put yourself in the mind of a judge, a judge is, his whole job is to judge things. The world is in black and white, right? This is, he's guilty, not guilty. This is what his sentence should be, Right. These algorithms or classifiers of any type are probabilistic, right? They give you an uncertain, they give you an error boundary. Mm -hmm. So, um, however, this company has bucketed low, medium, and high, right? And they say medium and high is high risk. You should watch out for that yeah. person, right? That's not how classifiers work at all. It's, it's, in fact, on their underlying algorithm, they fit a raw score to deciles and then bucket up those deciles, right? So into low, medium, and high. So they're hiding the underlying uncertainty of the algorithm. I think a very first step is to put a warning label, just like the Wisconsin Supreme Court said, that says these things are probabilistic models. Mm -hmm. you're, talking, you're talking about like a 60% chance here, right? You're not talking about like, uh, you're not talking about definitely. Yeah. And maybe even say like people with a score of four, you know, here's a hundred people with that score, like 30 of them actually committed another crime or, you know, right. or these are the actual biographies like to, to, yeah, in the result presentation, I, I agree. There's a lot you can do, but I think people want to have that, yeah, high, medium, low, the red, amber, green, the, the thumbs up, thumbs down in many cases, right? But probably we need to work on that. Yeah. <laughs> It fits with it fits with how a judge, like if I imagine judges, right? They deal in categories, right? It fits it fits the domain. But I will say that everybody looks at the weather every day, right? You see a twenty percent chance of rain, and you think, well, <laughs> you come up with your threshold, and you say, "Am I going to bring my umbrella or not?" Yeah, right? Yeah. People people understand probabilities at a core level. We don't need to hide those, especially in this case. Right. And in terms of the algorithm design, like. Is, is there a way to avoid bias, like in, in setting up these systems, like just from a basic 
statistics level? You know, I don't, I'm not um, the right person to ask about that because I don't know, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know necessarily from a, a criminalology perspective. I would think there has been some movement to move to more of a decision tree based approach, sort of spread out the category, spread out the risk build in this idea of uncertainty that I'm hopeful about, but, um, you know, uh, and the decision really... tree would make clear how, which weight is put on which question, but like what the outcome right, of exactly. each answer, what the impact of each answer is on the total result. Right. And as you said before, right now, this is a black box. It's just like answers in score out, but it's right. never made transparent like which question is how important actually and might there be a problem or can we follow that reasoning let's say behind the the decision yeah the other thing it, in or it, from an ethical standpoint um moving the decision boundary from high risk low risk to 50 percent higher right higher than average risk moving that all the way to the end you know to the highest risk so that we only classify people that were reasonably certain for some definition of reasonably certain would be easy fix. I mean, if you look at like detecting fraud, detecting fraud, when they come up with an algorithm to detect fraud, they don't set it at 50% because everybody would get hit with it all the time, right? So they set it all the way at the end. Um, so number one, they don't have to review as many cases, but number two, the algorithm is super, super certain that that's going to, that when I hit there, um, this guy has, or this person has a higher likelihood of committing fraud. I think that would fix, it would minimize the difference in false positives, and false negatives, and also fix a lot of it. If you said, okay, we're only going to treat people differently if they get a score of nine or 10. This is a good time to take a little break and talk about our sponsor this week, Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's Q-L-I-K dot D-E slash data stories. And as you know, the upcoming presidential election in the US has led to thousands and thousands of candidate mentions by the media. Now the question is, who has the lead on a daily basis? Who gets the most coverage? And you can take a look at Click's presidential election app on the web and look at detailed statistics on all the TV network coverage for all the candidates and especially, of course, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. The data comes from the Internet Archive's television news archive, and the app itself is designed using ClickSense and a few JavaScript frameworks, and it allows you not only to see the big picture of media mentions, but also drill into individual candidates, individual timeframes, down to a week or a day, and individual TV networks, so you can get a full understanding of the media landscape surrounding the presidential elections. Check it out for yourself on the Click website. We'll put the link in the show notes, of course. And of course, try out ClickSense for free at click.de slash data stories. That's Q-L-I-K dot D-E slash data stories. Thanks again for sponsoring us. And now back to the show. Jeff, can you talk a little bit about the technicalities of the analysis that, that you made? That's something I'm super, super curious about. 
And uh, actually, we are doing a little bit of this work in my lab as well. So I have, that's one of the reason why, reasons why I'm so interested. But basically, you've been trying to reverse engineer the black box, right? So you don't have access to the internals of the software. So you cannot really know how the software makes decisions. But you are trying to re... As I said, reverse engineer the decisions and what the model does by looking exclusively at the data that it receives as an input and creates as an output. Is that a correct uh, description of, of what you have done? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, and we do that a lot, even outside of the algorithm space. Like if we're looking at things like, um, you know, who gets charged more for bankruptcy or Do people have the equal opportunity in terms of access to education? Essentially, what this algorithm does is classifies people into groups. We can look for differences among those groups, right? So in one sense, correcting for those facts is almost superfluous how the algorithm actually works. It was I was really glad that they use a logistic regression classifier because we're sort of doing apples to, oranges, uh, apples, to apples then. And I was also glad that I found that they did a Cox a proportional hazards model because that then we were able to do one and sort of add in more factors to look for the, you know, um, the difference in scores or whatever. But uh, if you're just trying to figure out it, are the groups classified differently, as long as you sort of have a defensible sort of position and you, you correct it for things that you can correct for. I feel that there's a strong enough case to be made that this is actually happening. So when we did this, we're talking about a prognostic test. We worked with a, you know, a handful of criminologists who looked at our study, and then we also looked at epidemiology. So we, we had someone help us who is an epidemiologist, because healthcare does this all the time. Healthcare tries to predict who's going to get cancer, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, with a certain amount of certainty and like defines And they have a very specific way on how they test these algorithms. So, I mean, not these algorithms, these classifiers that they've been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. So we took epidemiology uh, methods and, and applied them to this classifier. So basically, uh, do I understand correctly that the, the, the features or attributes that you use to build your own model are not necessarily all the features that have been used in the original software, in the original model, right? You don't have access to everything, right? Yeah, of course, because we don't have, so we don't have the answers to the individual test, uh, questions. If we had the answers to the individual questions that the person filled out, we would be able to say something a little bit more robust, which is African-Americans answer this question, like this is the one that is causing this problem right? Or this group is the one. And you see that happen a lot in um, when they're talking about SATs or ACTs, they try and correct for differences among races and throw out questions that say only white folks answer correctly. And in all the literature that we looked at, nobody looks at the individual questions to see if they have number one, lead to poorer decisions and number two, lead to an over, you know, lead to an over prediction because one race or one protected status class is answering a question in a certain way. But we can't know that because we have a series of unknowns plus a series of knowns, which is the criminal history, age, and gender. 
And we're just trying to figure out what's happening in this series of unknowns. So all the data and code that you used for this analysis is available in a very nice GitHub page. I saw you also have a, a, an additional article at ProPublica explaining in details what what you have done and how and why. This is something I really, really like. And um, do I understand correctly? You also have the, the data is available. So if a person wants to either rerun the same analysis or um, do additional analysis, that's possible, right? They would just go there and, and do it. <laughs> yeah, that's something that we do a lot here because, you know, we want, it's just sort of like from an ethical standpoint for us to be entirely transparent about exactly what we did. And the company did come back to us and pointed out that we had four errors in our data set, which is pretty good because when we first got the data set, we had to FOIA for it, which is Freedom of Information Act. Um, originally, the county said it would cost us $11,000. And then we sort of got a lawyer and they were like, oh, never mind, it's $1,000. But then we spent a year... Joining, <laughs> so that was pretty good. I really like that you're talking about that because this is kind of like giving our listeners a little bit of behind the curtains what what it, what it takes to to. I think it's very important to show what it takes to develop a, a project like this, right? Because yeah, yeah. you you read an article, there is a certain number of of words, right? Not not too long, but the amount of work that is needed in order to create this article is is amazing. So yeah, you no, know, it is amazing. It was a lot work a year of my life and then what we did is we were like okay so we got the scores and we were like okay can you give us the criminal histories and they were like oh yeah we can't do that we don't know how to do that and we were like okay so we'll scrape your website but is there any identifier that'll join these two things like is there a booking number that'll join these two things and they said oh no we just join on first name and date of birth <laughs> which you know sort of sank my soul a little bit <laughs> <laughs> We spent months and months hand-checking just random samples over and over and over again to make sure that our error rate was small enough that the only errors were typos. Mm -hmm. And we're pretty confident. I mean, I think I personally looked at like, you know, 2,000 individual cases. Julia and uh, Lauren, my co-authors, probably looked at way more. We probably looked and, and fact-checked every single line in that data set, but... Uh, it took a couple of years off my life, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, I think it's totally worth it. It's it's such an amazing article and and project in general, and uh, it's very much needed. As I, as I said earlier, it's it's a it's one of the biggest challenges we we are facing, I believe, right? Because as I said, on the one hand, um, machine learning promises to make better decisions than humans in some cases. And we do want that if it's possible, right? On the other hand, we also have to be really careful. So work like the one that you are doing is super, super important. Yeah, I would say, I mean, machine learning classifiers or even from logistic regression all the way to neural nets, you have to pay attention, especially if you're classifying folks, you have to pay attention to what a classification means, right? So maybe Siri, you know, doesn't pick up on my voice correctly or autocompletes a little bit weird for me, you know, or my iPhone autocompletes a little bit weird for me. The actual impact to that, to my life, is minor annoyance. But if you're talking about someone losing a job 
or somebody maybe going to jail because of this outcome, you need to sort of think about what is a failure mode mean in that situation. Yeah, and it's in general a huge topic because, as you say, we're also affected on this like pretty much on an everyday basis. There's basically scoring systems everywhere now, right? So um, some some online stores change the prices depending on on, on your cookies. Um, same is reported for flights as well. I mean, these are sort of luxury problems, but I think it mm -hmm. illustrates that we are constantly being judged automatically by machines. Right? Yeah, you're sort of uh, li listing a series of my failures, yeah. right? We spent yeah, a lot of time looking at online stores. Yeah. We couldn't get enough information. You know, it's not like you can FOIA online store. We spent a lot of time looking at differences in flights. It's not like you can ask the airline, no matter how many lawyers you have, right. for more information about their scoring algorithm. But stay tuned. We might pick back up the flag after this. Oh, wow. Even though yeah. this one took yeah. a year, it was the easiest of all of them. <laughs> so the hardest problem is actually to, to crack the black box open wide enough that you can actually get a grip on the actual problem. Is, is that it? Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, in this case, we have the classification output. Yeah. In If you're looking at prices, you can only sort of infer what the change of price is going to be. Plus, you don't really know what goes into that algorithm to begin with. Same thing with flights. Flights have to do with, like the very nature of the economy, flight prices have to do with that. But So it may be there's a base rate for a flight, but then if you have a cookie and you looked at some other flight before, they'll raise it up. But it's hard to isolate what exactly that targeting effect is because there are so many unknowns on how they calculate those rates. So can you give us any preview of what is going to happen next at ProPublica and from your team? Yeah, uh, we, I normally don't do that because I bet you there'll be a journalist listening and he'll scoop me. Um, and well, you don't have to, you don't have to, but I mean, I have to ask this question. <laughs> I know, I know. Stay, um, all I would say is... Uh, well, I saw you You just published, I think there was a, an article a few days ago from ProPublica on analyzing Amazon's Amazon algorithm, right? Yeah. So what we found in Amazon's case was that their algorithm wasn't actually an algorithm. Right, um, that's their a problem algorithm. too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, they, yeah, that's a problem. So they say they have an algorithm that's all consumer friendly, but when we looked into it, there's this marketplace that they have, and they order. They say that the marketplace is ordered by price plus shipping, right? And it turns out that if you were associated with Amazon, they didn't order you by price plus shipping. They just put you to the top of the list, right? So if someone's going for the cheapest price they'll click on an Amazon or FBA seller first and pay maybe extra shipping, even though that price looks lower, which is a consumer, a consumer interest sort of story. It turns out that Google was doing the same thing in the EU and got sort of sued for that. So while Amazon has been touting this algorithm forever and ever and ever and saying, you know, it's good for consumers, it turns out that there's this little switch in their algorithm If you're associated with Amazon or you are Amazon, you get better placement, which was kind of fun. We went in looking for an algorithm and we found sort of a decision where they decided to circumvent the algorithm to make more money, which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the word algorithm, I think we should do a whole episode just on that word because it's one of the most tortured words, I think, today. Yeah, yeah. what it means. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's I'm not tricky, even yeah. sure I would call a, a machine learning model an algorithm. Often the algorithm is fine, you know, the algorithm is fine, but it the is training tricky. is the problem, Once it's right? been or trained. The, how the output is used, <laughs> like anything else, basically, like the whole yeah, social system yeah, around yeah, it. Exactly. The algorithm is just, I don't know, backpropagation or logistic regression or something, right? That's that's not the problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Gradient descent, or like you can yeah. do a yeah, regression by hand. Yep. I don't envy you if you want if you do that, but um, yeah, um, you know they're well defined statistics to some extent. I agree with you. Um, I totally agree with you tech technically, but you know uh, there's this great quote from the editor of Time magazine in the '70s, and he said, you know, someone came with like a really thoughtful piece. And he said, no, 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 put the dog food where the dog is, which means people have this idea of what an algorithm is that doesn't line up with the technical specification, just like they have an idea of what bias means, which maybe mm -hmm. doesn't line up with like a statistical definition. So we have to sort of play a little loose with those technical things, which as a nerd mm -hmm. sort of you know, rubs me the wrong way sometimes. So we might say that algorithms, things that are algorithms are not necessary. So Amazon's algorithm is not an algorithm, right? Or very smart at all. Um, a logistic regression, nobody would really call that an algorithm. But we're using it as a synonym for a classification, a statistical classification. Yeah, but I think it's important to recognize that like social decisions and, you know, social assumptions get put into that. So it's not, and this is exactly like coming back to the story, I think part of the problem, like all the assumptions that go into system design and, you know, which are not really part of an algorithm, but much more implicit and much more, yeah, harder to grasp. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, in this case, it, your, your, how you did in high school had an effect on your score, right? Like that is a decision that you made morally that you put into something that is going to try statistically to find out if that has an effect. And pretty much everything's going to have an effect given a large enough sample size. So you leave it in, but that may have, you know, uh, especially with problems with access to education, again, that answer may just be learning, oh, this is someone from an African-American, a poor African-American neighborhood, right? Plus, when you look at individuals, an individual can always be a statistical exception. Then we get to the whole <laughs> issue right, of exactly. biases, like so, how we, you know, like take three examples of something and then totally make up our mind. That's a, another whole new episode, yeah. No, but it's, I think we're just waking up to this, like, yeah, how to look critically at these systems, how to also critique them in a proper way, or and I think this is also why your article is so good because it it critiques the whole approach on on many levels like and all the important ones like on the technical one on the on the impact one on the basic assumption one you know so yeah we need to develop these capabilities <laughs> pretty quick <laughs> so these these projects help yeah. yeah yeah and it's very balanced I have to say so you're not just saying hey this is totally wrong and right? it's, it's, I, I like the fact that you are kind of like very systematically trying to explain what is going on and using a, a objective a, an approach that is as objective as you as you can well thank you i'd like to introduce you to a couple people who don't agree <laughs> with that who have been bugging me on twitter but um <laughs> that's fine i think that's a conversation that needs to go on it's fine i think it's fine yeah definitely i'm totally with you i'm totally with you i'm being a little glib but um that's what we try for here uh, the only other thing that i would sort of mention in terms of algorithms we do have an algorithm 
where you can, or a classifier or, um, you know, a score that you can challenge the accuracy of the information. And that's the credit score. So in this case, it seems to be like we started out the conversation about discovery. It seems to be you should be able to challenge the accuracy of the score or at least understand what went into calculating your risk score. And we have that model already in credit scores. You can't challenge the underlying uh, classifier. Everybody does it a little bit differently, Experian versus somebody else, for example. But you can go in and say, no, I never got that fine, or yet, or here's proof that I paid that bill correctly. I think that's another step forward because, especially when you're talking about statistical learning, any difference in a factor that goes into a statistical classifier could bump you to a different risk level or something like that. And we only have that in one instance, and we've had that for a long time. Nice. So one last question I want to ask you is, Say that some of our listeners want to try out something like that. <laughs> where where would you start? Is there do you have any suggestions for um, some of the nerds that are listening to this? Oh, uh, you know, I mean, the problem with criminal justice data is number one, you can't get it, and number two, it's dirty. Like for example, in um, New York, in I I think 2013 or something like that, it, uh, we had in New York State we had you know, something like 50 hate crimes. If you look at the crime statistics in Mississippi, they had zero. And given the history of Mississippi, um, I'm not entirely sure there were absolutely no hate crimes. So criminal justice statistics in terms of um, the criminal justice angle is very hard to sort of get clean data. Um, there are a couple data sets like Stop and Frisk BuzzFeed News put up a, a data set about FBI planes that are that is very interesting. Criminal justice and especially algorithms or classifiers surrounding that is hard, but there are algorithms everywhere. And I would say that assessing the output of an algorithm, mm -hmm. if you can mm -hmm. find a very clean decision boundary, uh, a classifier that's just up and down, that's something that's entirely easy to figure out, right? And you can look for interesting correlations between or groups that are maybe classified a different way. I mean, one way can also be to sort of anonymize data or take out certain identifying features and then rerun the same thing. So there have been a lot of experiments with, I don't know, sending out resumes with different Like uh, like names that suggested a certain ethnicity, identical resume, but you know one one guy sounds Mexican, the other woman sounds Indian. What, which responses do you get? Stuff like this. I think there's there's a lot of these. Like if you find a good angle into a topic, a lot of really simple experiments you could do to probe these systems. Cutting down on the variance. So instead of trying to predict everybody, if you have, especially when you're trying to interrogate, we found in the past that what works, and there's been a bunch of research doing exactly that, is right. coming up with single profiles that you can uh -huh. control for and then varying just one variable. So asking for a bunch of insurance quotes, you know, in a bunch of different zip codes, but doing the same exact thing, you know, for one single profile can show, there's a guy in California that did that like in 2009 or something, but that's a promising avenue. That being said, we've tried that in the past with online pricing and flight data. And again, it's in, it just didn't, you can't cut through the noise. You can't control for enough variance there. 
But if you see something like that, you can definitely do it. Well, Jeff, thanks a lot. I think that that's another one of those topics we could go on forever. And it's super, super cons consequential, right? I mean, that's that's really important. Um, so thank thank you very much for coming on the show and talking about this this great project. I think we are very much looking forward to seeing what what yeah what else <laughs> you are brewing at ProPublica, and uh, yeah we we will be waiting. Thanks so much, Jeff. Stay tuned and thanks for having me, guys. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, guys. Have a good one. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, we have a request. If you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're of course on Twitter at twitter.com slash datastories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast, all in one word. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage datastory.es and look for the link that you find on the bottom in the footer. So one last thing that we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want to us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for us. And that's all for now. See you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories. That's q-l-i-k dot d-e slash datastories.